what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod new year same us this is and joined by my trusty co-host dave martin swagger dave how's the air in 2022 2020 year three baby we out here <laughs> yeah uh unfortunately it is still feeling that way however the pods do not reflect the uh the, the tenor of those podcasts in 2020 when we were really scraping the bottom of the barrel for anything because uh we got a packed show today man uh we got the holiday recap show where we're just talking about everything that happened over the christmas break um where we dropped our best songs and tv of the year so go back and check those out we'll be doing our movies best movies of 2021 in short order you can find all that content on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod nostalgia pod on spotify and apple and if you're on spotify give us five stars get that rating up let people know about us um dave we're gonna start in a familiar place because the last review we had of last year was spider-man no way home a marvel product and now we're back with marvel because hawkeye wrapped up just a few days after our last podcast the six episode mini series on a not so popular Avenger. Something that, that's addressed in the show. How did you feel? Was this more Falcon and the Winter Soldier for you? Or did it reach that like Loki level uh, MCU property for you? There's not a chance in hell this reached the Loki high for my guy. <laughs> <laughs> or WandaVision. Doesn't have the ambition of WandaVision. Doesn't have the enjoyability of Loki to me. Now, I wouldn't peg it as low as falcon and the winter soldier just because falcon and the winter soldier also had a greater ambition that thus led to uh more missed goals hawkeye just there's just not a lot going on with hawkeye it's really simple and to some people that's enough but to me this just felt like a lot of homework to me and there's moments i like there's characters i like but overall I didn't find this this story that as thin as it was. I didn't find this story that compelling. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> it's uh, you know, with a show like this, I think you could even say, ah, sometimes people come to these sorts of shows just for the straight vibes. This wasn't even really a vibe show. Just was kind of like, uh, we're gonna give a little bit of fan service to those five Hawkeye heads, uh, Jeremy mm-hmm. Renner heads out there. Matt Fraction readers. <laughs> yeah. Then we're going to introduce Kate Bishop and we're going to wipe our hands off, maybe throw a little kingpin in here at the end. And uh, we're, we're good to go. Um, I, I will say, obviously, getting uh, some Florence Pugh in my life is never a bad thing. And uh really enjoy her Yelena uh, performance. But. A lot of this I found to be pretty uninteresting. And, you know, when you have a stacked cast like this, like when you just have Tony Dalton kind of around to like be like throw you off the scent of the bad guy. <laughs> uh, it, it's just kind of like the the potential was there to do more. And they really just mm. shot straight down the middle as Hawkeye would do. So wh- why don't you tell me more about like what didn't work for you specifically? Well, I think if you just analyze how, the six episodes of Hawkeye work, the the storytelling, the 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 story, the plot of Hawkeye is so secondary to what Marvel's true goals were with the series, which was to introduce us to Haley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop, which I expect to be a 
anchor for Marvel in the years to come and also set up the Echo spinoff. And did they do the work to make Echo that interesting to justify a spinoff? I would say that's a resounding no, but they didn't care. That's just like, we'll just get it going to keep the content factory rolling, you know, no supply chain issues at the MCU. And, you know, Renner, Academy Award nominated actor, definitely is punched below his weight throughout his tenure in the MCU. That didn't really change in Hawkeye. Oh, he, he, gets a little emotional at the plaque talking to himself to Natasha big deal he doesn't even act in anything but what one scene with Linda Cardellini Linda Cardellini clearly was off on her own banging this out in two three days like it, it just felt really bullet pointy to me and the like wow moments like oh there's there's Florence Pugh love Florence Pugh happy belated birthday to her by the way but like she's blowing everyone away as, as oh, she yeah. does often and doesn't really answer much right like the Black Widow uh, post credit scene no acknowledgement of uh, Julia Dreyfus's Valentina the De Fontaine character so I really don't know uh, the, the motivation seemed a little more unclear to me about just trying to avenge her sister and then that kind of getting resolved a little neatly at the end there with her conversation with Clint, whatever. But I, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't think we had enough compelling story threats here. Vera Farmiga, like Tony Dolan, also equally wasted, just not asked to do much of anything. Yeah. Uh, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying. It's, <laughs> it's really funny just to kind of think about, the fact that they were basically finding any way that they could to get Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop into this universe. And this is what they came up with. Like, you know, if it had even just been something with her and, and Florence Pugh, you know, just kind of, you know, trying to maybe even find Hawkeye together or something like that, or like simultaneous stories, I feel like it would have been more interesting to focus more on them than Renner in this. And I mean, I, I, good for Renner. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's like just ready to be done with all this. And it seems like this is his like farewell. Finally, I don't blame him. He's put in more than enough time, like you said. Um, but it really just feels kind of unnecessary. And that's, that's been what we've felt with a lot of these Marvel, uh, prop TV properties specifically, just like, what are they ultimately adding to the overall MCU at this point? And, you know, besides, no way home shang chi was i think a success but uh fell into the typical marvel cgi fuck fest by the end it's like what what really came out of 2021 for marvel that you look at and you're like okay here we go this is going to be like driving this next stage forward you know you have a couple of good characters who are being set up but the tentpole people are kind of up in the air. Even Tom Holland, you know, will probably be back as Spider-Man, but his deal is up. They're going to have to drop the bag for him. That's undecided. So what's really there for the MCU moving forward? Florence Pugh is definitely there. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that that has to be it, right? It's got to be yeah. her and, and Kate Bishop. Like, yeah, yes. Kate Bishop. I mean, more people to come on the shows like She-Hulk, you know, seems like She-Hulk could be a, uh, walk into the sunset for 
Mark Ruffalo's Bruce Banner, same similar to how this was Clint Barnes' farewell and Jeremy Renner. But yeah, I mean, the bandied about stat uh, the past few weeks, this uh, four Marvel Disney Plus MCU shows from 2021, the runtime of those has surpassed the runtime of the entire Infinity Saga film slate. Uh, I would say the Infinity Saga accomplishes a lot more from a storytelling perspective, from a memorability perspective, from a filmmaking perspective, basically all the perspectives. And you know that part of that's just a movies to TV thing, but just the ambition is just not consistent with these shows right now. And you know, like I know some people are like, "Oh, I liked it just because it was you know kind of straightforward. There was no CGI fuck fest." At the end, they were fighting with arrows, and that was kind of cool and fun and stuff. That's how Hawkeye is, how so Kate Bishop is. That's great. But I think a big problem with, like, this, again, this is the, a big adaptation from the famous Mad Fraction comic run, which is the most popular Hawkeye run. But I think a big issue with this, this, this plot being portrayed into the show is, like, the MCU viewer does not have much of a relationship to, like, the Ronin side of Clint Barton because the road inside of Clint Barton is like two and a half minutes in Avengers Endgame. Endgame, right? Not Infinity War. Endgame. Yeah. Like it's just, it, it's so quick. It's not, there, there's no, there's no weight to it. Right. Even the whole Barton family is like really cookie cutter as it is. So I just felt like that kind of doesn't work. And the other part of that comic is the tracksuit people, which I just feel are really unfulfilling villains as well, particularly like, Kazi and his relationship with Echo, I just don't think works at all. They set up Kingpin to reintroduce, you know, people from the Daredevil shows, just as we're getting Charlie Cox's cameo, No Way Home. But again, like, is there anything with Kingpin that satisfying beyond just like, oh, look, there's Kingpin. He'll be back now. Just like, oh, there's Echo. She's getting her own show. Like, nothing is actually developed. It's just shown to us with like a flag planted to say, hey, we'll be back. I, I just I just not not impressed with it and even like did you find like this was that great of a holiday vibe I, I thought it was a better holiday vibe than New York City vibe uh, you know this, yeah, this, sure. this, this was not filmed in New York they could have done a better job in making it feel more New York in my opinion uh, apart from like the ending stuff with the tree uh, mm-hmm. I guess my, my favorite moment in the whole show is the fight Kate and Yelena have in like that office where you have like oh. that dolly shot just rolling past the cubes as they're just fighting and tumbling over each other that was that was really cool and well done but other than that i just not i don't have much to take away from this in terms of like this as an entity as a story like yes i'm i'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more kate bishop i think Kate Seinfeld's great but like this as a story i just thought was it's just weak yeah i i felt like it was decent holiday vibes definitely not that much for new york city movie um and i i think the moments i'll probably remember most are like the silly moments uh florence Pugh and kate bishop in the elevator good humor you know florence Pugh talking about like the craft macaroni and cheese and how great that was like that that sort of thing also the the larping stuff like stood out is was something that was like memorable and, and nice but like i guess also the echo being a disabled superhero um and you know the older hawkeye jeremy renner um a differently able to be i should say uh dealing with that loss of that ability as well um and have been come to grips with that like that that sort of thing is like i think those are 
solid moments from the show, things that they can point to and say we did that pretty well, or at least they get credit for. But yeah, I don't think there's much else to take away from this other than, you know, okay, Kate Bishop's here. Like, you know, Elena is more, you know, more involved now and obviously moving forward is going to be, you know, just thinking about it, like, is Florence Pugh and, and Tom Holland now the like downy Chris Evans of this whole thing moving forward? Like, who's like like that tent pole person that they're just yeah. like, all right, this is it. I seem that they want Anthony Mackie to stick around as the new Captain America. So he, but he kind of serves as like an older guard face the way like Doctor Strange probably will and Thor if he's around after the fourth True. one. You know, so it's kind of a holding pattern. You know, if you think about what movies have happened since Endgame, it's been a lot of new table setting with new people or a lot of closing the books. Even No Way Home is more of a closing the book and a reset than anything else. Right. Obviously, Black Widow's uh, the, the same. So, you know, I guess we'll see how ambitious from a storytelling perspective Doctor Strange gets come May. But I don't know. Like it, it seems like we're we're at a crossroads. Like I, I kind of feel like Guardians three in two years is the last Guardians movie. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. And, and then, Black, then they Black Panther's at a different kind of crossroads, obviously due to tragic circumstances. So there's there's, inher- yeah. there's inherently a lot going on, and a lot still to get going on. So I don't know. Maybe I think I'm I'm most invested in whatever cosmic direction they go with, like the symbiote and null and mm-hmm. kit Harrington's black knight and shit like that just because that could get like freaky and shit you know so yeah i, I have two obviously. more questions before we, we wrap this up first uh vincent vincent d'onofrio is kingpin do you like yeah. him or not i like him in the daredevil show i've seen two of the three daredevil seasons uh he's good in that it's slightly tweak of that original mm-hmm. performance but i i think he's quite capable yeah um yeah he's he's all right like he, yeah. he's not my for some reason i just look at him and um, i can't get past the uh criminal intent uh vincent d'onofrio which i just thought was uh, a terrible <laughs> like uh actor so it's like i don't know still it's hard to get past that for me second question this is where we'll wrap up four right now four mcu series coming out next year that are confirmed we have miss marvel she hulk moon knight and secret invasion right any which one are you most looking forward to probably moon knight oscar Oscar isaac Isaac. moon knight's kind of like the marvel batman except he's even more like mentally deranged if they have the balls to really take it in the moon knight direction per the source material i think that's quite compelling miss marvel is another person that is being set up to be a uh pillar moving forward Secret Invasion feels like a, a bunch of wheels spinning. Um, could be cool. I don't know. And yeah. She-Hulk, uh, Tatiana Maslany, I, I do really like her. I think she's a really talented person. So looking forward to see what she does as well. So I'd say, yeah, She-Hulk and uh, She-Hulk and Moon Knight are the two that interest me the most. See, I, I think Moon Knight is definitely the one I'm most looking forward to. But I think Secret Invasion, just because the cast that's been confirmed, we don't know what their roles are, but we obviously right. have... Samuel L., Ben Mendelsohn, and Kobe Smulders coming back. But then you have Kingsley Benadir as the, yeah. the lead villain, Olivia Coleman, Amelia Clark, uh, Christopher McDonald, a couple of like yeah, that big is exciting. Names that you're like, hmm, 
how are they going to tie them in? Yeah, so there, some there's some scroll, some stuff. scroll fun going on there. So that'll be cool. Hopefully, I, I'm still convinced that Doctor Strange was maybe a scroll in uh, No Way Home because the way he was acting just didn't make any sense. I was talking <laughs> with a friend of the pod, Sean McKenna, about that. We're both perplexed, but anyways, why don't we stay on Disney Plus and move on to something that it seems has gotten a little bit more love the book of boba fett which premiered this past wednesday uh no more friday drops at least for right now for disney plus star wars shows so yeah back to the wednesdays just like the mc what do you think about that yeah i mean i don't don't mind i I like stuff in the middle of the week there's less stuff in the middle of the week take it over you know own wednesday the way HBO owns Sunday night, you know, it's, it's not a bad call. Uh, <laughs> Disney did not waste any time. Hawkeye finale next week. Here's Boba Fett. No breaks. <laughs> and I bet after uh, Boba Fett ends, we're getting Miss Marvel or something from Marvel side of things. You know, I, I'm sure they're going to, they're going to flood the zone, but yeah, I, I like the Wednesday call. No question. Yeah, I do too. Um, and, and we knew this was coming uh, teaser at the end of Mandalorian season two uh tamir morrison and ming na wen playing fennec shand obviously tamir morrison is boba fett dave just like where were you at going into this were you excited for this was this something you wanted something you had even considered prior to the teaser Hmm. boba fett where you at yeah well it's it's ultimately the culmination of a lot of things that had not been fulfilled lest we forget the Josh Trank Boba Fett spinoff film that died on the vine because Josh Trank and also Lucasfilm, you know, uh, but I'm sure this, this had to be on the mind of many as soon as we actually saw Boba Fett in the flesh removed from the Sarlacc pit. In fact, alive. Once we saw that in Mandalorian season two, this was definitely on the table. I really liked how they showed it to us at the end of Mandalorian season two as a stinger scene. And they had not announced it like the week before at that Disney investor day at the end of 2020. I thought that was a really cool way to introduce the show as like a spinoff of the Mandalorian while we wait for the next proper Mandalorian season. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I, I think from a storytelling perspective, it's probably not going to be as ambitious and probably as interesting as something like the Mandalorian or even maybe Kenobi, I don't know. But you're finally seeing Boba Fett be a protagonist, something that has only been done even briefly in comic form. You know, he Boba Fett is someone who got so popular and so famous because he looked fucking cool with his armor, not because he had anything to say. Um, he has four lines and six and a half minutes of screen time in the original trilogy. Boba Fett is truly a cipher, and that is no more. Tamu Morrison reprising his role, obviously, with Mandalorian Season 2. Django Fett, the clones, now Boba Fett, here he is. So I, I don't think there's like, I wouldn't say there's a lot riding on it. I really wouldn't because it, it, it's just Boba Fett. You know, he's, yeah. we, 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 I think, I think we got it. Like there, there's nothing like, there's nothing to, to learn. There's nothing to, to, to get. It's just kind of having fun seeing Boba Fett be Boba Fett, I think. Yeah. Just a, uh, a mini series telling a i think a, a small story it's supposed to be a, a seven episodes i believe seven that's or eight right. um so it's it's not going to be it doesn't seem like it's going to be something that's ongoing i think there's a piece of this story that will most likely 
be continued in other stories moving forward, at least written in. And that's uh, Fennec Shand just seems like uh, a character that is gaining a lot of uh, traction, a lot of fan love so far. Was in the Bad Batch earlier this year or 2021. So definitely going to be seeing more of her. But what do you think of just this premiere in general? Did you like it? Were were you pleased with what we got? Yeah, I liked it. Again, I, I don't have like high demands for the show, though. Like seeing Boba Fett burst out of the Sarlacc pit something people have thought about for for decades cool to see it manifest gotta be honest you know and oswald called this on an episode of uh parks and rec pretty great clip. look that up he, he did yes that, that's being widely circulated <laughs> uh, and I, I am quite interested in seeing him with the tuscans uh notably when we see him revealed at the end of mandalorian season two episode one armorless boba wielding a gaffy stick suggesting that he has been accepted in some manner into Tuscan culture. I like the nod we got in the premiere of season two to Tuscan culture as well. So just kind of seeing Boba Fett interact with the Tuscan Raiders, I think, is going to be pr- pretty cool. Um, and you know the, the, the present day timeline taking over Jabba and Bibb's uh, you know criminal enterprise, I think that probably has more potential as for 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 fans of Star Wars lore, for people looking for those Easter eggs and references, because I think we could maybe see a Crimson Dawn Kira reference, a la Solo, or even something even more hardcore like Prince Zizor and Black Sun and stuff from Shadows of the Empire. So, you know, I, we're not going to get anything groundbreaking, but yeah, again, for the lore heads, I think that there, there'll be some fun stuff to be to be with, you know. On the other hand, it's more time on Tatooine. I think we know Tatooine for the most part at this point. Hate sand, Dave. Just hate it. Gets um, everywhere. <laughs> you know, I, I was a lot less interested in the stuff with the Tusken Raiders um, than I was with the, uh, you know, seeing him and, and Fennec walking around, uh, meeting the different people on Tatooine, interacting with them, kind of seeing what the setup is going to be. Um, I, I think... I guess what I'm hoping is that the Tuscan reader stuff is uh, less and less as we go forward. And that story kind of storyline gets resolved and we're more in the present because I think the, the criminal enterprise of it all is much more interesting to me um, and seeing how those like relationships interplay seems like stuff with the mayor of that uh, city on Tatooine. I'm forgetting yeah. the name of it. Mas Espa brother. Yes. Mas Espa. That's Watto's. Gonna... That's Watto's hometown. I wonder if we can see old Watto. um it seems like that's going to be something that we're you know uh spending some time with or that's Mm going to be a main point of contention but yeah i i think the the scene that probably stood out most to me outside of them just sitting in jabba's palace and greet you know having people come and offer them gifts was uh uh ming ming no wen just fucking that chase scene with the uh Mm. the assassins was just awesome and i really i'm really looking forward to seeing how fennec uh, as a character just continues to to grow in this story it feels like the most exciting thread that will have a lasting effect from this this uh, mini series for me but anything else that you're excited for or expect to see yeah it'd be cool to see 
Crimson Dawn. It'd be less cool if you're not seeing Amelia Clark's Kira, though, I suppose. In a sense, this show is set up for a long runway because you're, the present day timeline, you're looking at five years after Return of the Jedi, meaning you have 25 years till Force Awakens. It's a lot of time to do criminal underworld stuff and, you know, doesn't seem like Boba's going to be bounty hunting all that much anymore, but I think that, that that side of Star Wars has long been something underexplored. The underworld, the smugglers, the the bounty hunters, the scum and villainy of it all. That, you know, it's a little grimier and darker and thus probably not as appealing to Lucasfilm to make, but if they went there, you know, it would be cool. Uh, I, it is nice to see a mainstream property led by two older actors. Timur Morrison's 60, Ming-Na Wen is 58. And they are our two leads here. She's that old? She is. Yeah, still still crushing it. Uh, And actually, another thing I think is exciting. The the Book of Boba Fett trailer only features material from episode one of the show. So, sounds like they're going to be hiding some stuff. And in general, just that unknown is cool. Uh, Robert Rodriguez, co-showrunner, following some directing he did on season two. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing seeing what they do. This was film pandemic, end of 2020, but because they film with the stagecraft technology in Manhattan Beach, they can can nail it. You know, so uh, I don't again again I don't think it's going to be anything too too groundbreaking, but I just think it'll be fun, and I think this this is something I find more. Uh, fulfilling, even if it's lower stakes in something like 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 Hawkeye, which I just feel way less invested in. So I guess it depends what you want. Certainly, we'll we'll be talking about the book of Boba Fett when we wrap up the season in uh, February. But for now, let's move off Disney Plus and on to HBO, where we're talking Insecure. Uh, series finale, not even season finale, series finale. No more insecure in our lives anymore. And Dave, I think we probably have to start at the end. Uh, so you know, spoilers from here on out. Are you are you pleased with where the show ended up with Issa and Lawrence back together? I, I I'm not pleased per se, but I, I, we all saw it coming so long ago at this point that it's tough to be too frustrated with it. I thought it was handled well. Uh, and overall, I thought the, the conclusion of the series was done quite well on how it treated you know, all its characters, how it treated most of the ensemble. So uh, I still found it pretty satisfying because you know, I'm more invested in the Issa and Molly friendship than I am in the Issa and Lawrence will they, won't they stuff. I thought the Ease and Molly stuff was done well, so I was overall satisfied. But yeah, fucking Lawrence, man. He he's, he he never went away. Yeah. <laughs> um I just want to say I I agree with what you're saying. Uh I think you, I I thought for a second the show was not going to go there and I was actually kind of excited. Apparently they recorded three different endings to the uh finale um and chose to go with this one, so I'm interested what those other two were. I'm sure there's one where she ends up with uh, uh, Daniel. But, right. um, you know, I, I had a friend who saw the finale before I did, and they asked, like, oh, so, like, 
you know, what, what do you think happens? And I was like, you know, I hard to say. I just I just hope her and Molly are like in a good place when it when it ends. Like that's like the only thing I really care about is their relationship in this show. And the the friend was really surprised because he he was like, oh man, I I really was more invested in who she was going to end up with, which I I never really found myself that invested in the show because it was just such a it felt like it was spinning its wheels at times. Like Lawrence was always in the background, and even though Issa had these other guys who had a lot going on or seemed like good fits for her, it was always kind of coming back to him. And show kind of felt like that's where it was destined. He's to inconsistent, be. <laughs> but. I think ultimately I, I didn't feel super satisfied because I was hoping that, you know, seeing all these other characters grow, Molly, you know, overcome some of her uh, insecurities, some of her issues, um, Kelly, you know, getting sober and then becoming a mom or at least uh, becoming pregnant. Um, you know, you, you saw some characters move in really positive directions and Issa D just kind of ends up becoming more successful at her job and back with the same guy she was with. I, I don't know. Well, what, what do I take away from that? Yeah. Yeah. When I was seeing like that kind of like, it was, it was like dream sequency there at the end, like her, her, her potential future. I thought they, they kind of made that like quite muddy. It's like, you're not supposed you don't really know like what is actually happening. What's actually progressing and what isn't. Cause there is a bit of like un- unannounced time skips. Uh, for the most part, throughout these last few episodes. But I guess just for me, it's like, it's a really successful, really important, uh, really notable show that I think is going to leave a, a lasting impact. It's like the first show of its kind, really, to portray Black millennials, you know, Black millennial women specifically. So it's really notable for that. I think all the characters definitely stand the test of time, especially... Uh, Molly, Yvonne Orji, just really awesome on this show. Uh, and, you know, I think like the ensemble, that's like being around the ensemble so much. There's some moments at the, towards the end of the season uh, five finale that I really enjoyed. Um, that second to last episode when they have the, the, I believe it's the going away party. Yeah. For, for, Tiffany. for, for Tiffany and Derek. Yeah. And then all the dudes are kind of like just shooting the shit with each other talking about food and stuff like you see dro come back and stuff yeah. like i really i thought that was really satisfying just seeing them all like it was like like that you know um i think you get a lot of good closure with the uh isa tiffany uh kelly uh molly friendship as well mm-hmm. uh so i think that they do a lot of good payoff and i think you're right though if anything if any if anyone is not paid off as well as perhaps they they deserve to be it it, it, it is isa and I yeah. think that they kind of stayed consistent to how Isa was characterized throughout the run mm-hmm. of the show and that she was up and down, you know? Yep. Yeah. So no, in, in a sense, it's not out of character, I guess. Yeah. And, and I think if, if anything, though, uh, there's probably three, maybe, maybe four people who are going to come out of this show and just uh, be in our lives for, the next decade plus uh Issa Rae obviously already mm-hmm. getting the bag creating yeah. more shows more content big um, producer now yeah she's she's a superstar as you mentioned Yvonne Orji I think is probably uh the best per- performer in the show I- I'd say probably the best actor she also has done some stand-up which is pretty good and just seems like she's going to be around for a while uh Jay Ellis um though <laughs> didn't really love Lawrence on the show uh beloved 
uh, actor uh, who yeah. I, I think is going he's, to be getting a lot more opportunities. He's going to be in Top Gun too once that yeah. once that finally comes out. And then of course Natasha Rothwell, who yeah. I think we've we've seen already in some things, but seems destined to kind of be in that like uh, uh, I'm forgetting the act- actress's name, which is probably not a good sign for this comparison. But like Fat Amy, um, oh, gosh, you know I, I feel like she's in that like Zach Galifianakis mm. like. Uh, style where she's going to be like that comic relief in movies that pops up might have a few yeah. features but R- rebel we'll, wilson that kind of stuff yes rebel wilson yes where, where they'll they'll be around and kind of uh supporting role in a lot of like comics yeah. moving forward so just uh, a a real pleasure to watch these five seasons we i think we came on to it a little late but we did uh glad that that we we've stuck with it and uh if, if you haven't watched it and you care about black stories uh dating or just kind of the experience, I think, of a lot of millennials, like you said, Dave, this is a good show to tune into and, and very right. bingeable, I'd say. So Yeah, of course. And like it, it has a lot of hallmarks that have been remarked upon. We've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Baller soundtrack. Loved oh, yeah. the Brent Fiaz gravity drop in the finale, my number two song mm-hmm. of 2021. Uh, incredible L.A. show. Um, I like how you kind of saw some of the, the sights and sounds at the end there on that drive. Again, just some more closure. And yeah, I think another thing to watch, the Insecure Writers Room. I would not be shocked to see people come out of this writers room and make great stuff in the future as in, in bigger roles. So that's also something to watch. Absolutely. Also, Larry Wilmore very quietly has been a great producer of uh black yeah. shows and content. Just kind of like to see where he's come from as a creator has just been really cool to watch over the last couple of years so right. uh shout out to isa shout out to the rest of the cast pleasure to watch all this let's uh let's move off tv though dave and onto the big screen we're gonna start we're gonna stay on hbo because they also dropped right before christmas the matrix resurrections uh dave i had never watched the matrix movie straight through i'd seen bits and parts on cable Don't say that they're all gonna leave <laughs> so i ended up watching the the original trilogy and then resurrections um i have some thoughts but mm. were you a matrix fan like right from the get-go when it came out that's a good question so i all i i've seen everything already <laughs> and i did a full rewatch before resurrections including for the first time watching the animatrix which is also on hbo max and Funny enough, I had not really been a Matrix fan as a kid. Like when it came out, I was young, but I, you know, I was a Star Wars got kid. I was a Lord of the Rings kid. Like Matrix just didn't really ever capture my attention as a kid. You know, coming out when I was a kid, so I didn't really latch on to it till like I went to college and like just had grown up a little bit more. But I mean, the mate, the first Matrix movie is certified classic. It incredible, holds up so well, so fucking good. And I'm really happy that I'd done the rewatch leading into Resurrections. I feel like you appreciate more things about Resurrection, or at least what's attempting to do if you are fresher on what had come before. And on the other hand, that might be a detriment to you if you don't really remember what had happened before and then watch Resurrections. But yeah, I, I really like the first one. I think Reloaded is an incredible action film. And, you know, Resurrect or, or, or Revolutions, you kind of lost in the sauce a little bit the uh universe and the uh rules of it kind of kind of muddy but mm. 
uh, I still find it really enjoyable. And I look back on the whole trilogy fondly just because it's an original creation with such a sense of style and place. And yep. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, the, the first Matrix is cool as fucking shit. You know, like mm-hmm. the looks and the glasses, the black, you know, then how, how the, ma- the, the Matrix itself has like the green hue and yet looks more lifelike than all the scenes set in the real world. Like there's, there's so much to appreciate thing about the, the first one in particular, of course, which still stands up today. Yeah. The, the first matrix, you know, in my first time watching through really stands out. Um, you know, I, I think the story was surprising a little bit, you know, kind of boiling down to like true love being the thing that helped Neo unlock his powers. Um, feels a, a bit corny, but whatever it's fine that's kind of how a lot of these stories really go but i think the first one is great like you said reloaded probably my favorite action scene from the whole thing is that highway chase fight just like you cannot touch that scene yes like (laughs) all-time scene and then (laughs) revolutions man like you take you take the things that really work well in the first two and you're like oh yeah we're just gonna put morpheus on the side and put like Neo and Trinity together in like three scenes. And then it's just going to be like robot aliens, like robot squids everywhere. And like, yeah. I was like, a lot, well, of, how a lot is of Zion. This? Yeah, a lot of Zion. Uh, Neo loses his eyesight, like it's just, or his physical eyesight, but can see the matrix. There. It's, yeah. it's a very bizarre thing. Yeah. It, you know, I think that, and then that, that final battle between uh, Neo and Mr. or yeah, uh, and Agent Smith. Smith is just uh not as satisfying as you'd hope it would be but anyways <laughs> brings us to resurrections were you in 2021 dave like i need a matrix reboot you know it's funny you say that if if you recall on youtube.com plus nostalgia pod we discussed the first rumblings of a matrix 4 being in development way back in 2017 at that time, Michael B. Jordan was attached to play, was it Morpheus' Morpheus. son, another Morpheus, young Morpheus, whatever it was at the time. Zach Penn had been attached, making that script. He is not involved in the Matrix Resurrections. And we had said at the time that there's potential there. Need to know a little bit more about what they're trying to achieve. Um, I wasn't necessarily clamoring for more Matrix, but I'm not opposed to it either because it's one of those things where once you've made a Matrix Revolutions, it's okay to make more because you'll probably do better. So, you know, I don't mind. And nothing nothing can sully the Matrix 1 just the way nothing sullies Jurassic Park or Empire Strikes Back. Like, the classics are still the classics. And even if the sequel's don't live up or don't all the way live up to what what started it it's okay right so i was interested in it and i think another part of that too is the wakowskis as filmmakers march to the beat of their own drums resurrections just lana this time lily's not involved but wakowskis for better and for worse singular filmmakers that have a point of view have a style all that right sometimes manifest in an amazing way like in speed racer you know, other times not so much like in Jupiter Ascending. So you, you take the good and the bad. So I, I was still, you know, compelled because again, I love the first one so much. And like I think that the DNA 
of the first one, right? Like the action, so indebted to Hong Kong cinema and the the aesthetics. Again, like there's just a lot of things I'm really interested in. And, you know, I didn't really care that, yeah, like the red pill has been largely uh, co-opted into different meanings nowadays, mm-hmm. culturally on the internet and things like that since the first film came out. But I was still uh, having an open mind about Resurrections and definitely did not expect uh, Resurrections to be what it is, which is definitively not Star Wars The Force, Force Awakens, definitively not Jurassic World. It is not that kind of pseudo-reboot type sequel. It is really anything but. Yeah. Uh, I think what made me most interested in this was the Keanu Reeves like renaissance of late, right you know? of course obviously the the john wick uh star <laughs> uh just so someone who went from being very lambasted and even if you watch the original matrix trilogy you kind of see why he got some of that it's a lot of like oh or yeah. orpheus like that like that that's sort of acting where you're like eh, it's maybe not the most nuanced uh <laughs> line reading per se but as he's aged and kind of come back into acting and in, in, in high profile roles he really seems to have found this, you know, style that it really works for him. And I was like, let's see what he can do playing a older Neo. And I, I think he's still pretty good in this. Um, I, I didn't necessarily love the movie, but I also thought it was better than it's probably like tied for second, I'd say with, with uh, reloaded. Yeah. Um, it's up there. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think the thing that I liked most about it was the first hour where yeah. you had oh, Neo. Totally. Yeah, you have Neo, who's been you know red pill or uh, yeah red red pilled. Uh, blue pilled. Blue pilled. Blue pilled. Sorry, blue yeah. pilled. Um, <laughs> Neo's been blue pilled. He's in this world where you know the Matrix was this video game he designed, and he has some sort of psychotic disorder. And you know he's talking with Neil Patrick Harris as his psychiatrist, who's kind of helping him understand like. Uh, all that was just this psychosis you were in and this is reality and blah, blah, blah. Um, and him trying to figure out like what the matrix actually was for him and seeing Trinity who's now named Tiffany and making sense of why he feels like he knows this person. Like that all was like so much more interesting to me. You get so much more. Um, yeah. Yeah. Abdul, uh, sorry. Uh, I'm, yeah, 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 Abdul, Abdul Mateen. Mateen the second um, yes. as Agent Smith turned Morpheus two of some yeah, sort, a, a Morpheus and, program, not the actual uh, human Morpheus, and just looking cool as shit in every single scene he's in, and like uh, you also get um, Jessica Henwick as Bugs uh, with her yeah. blue hair, just killing it. Like it, that that first hour is really really great, and then I think it kind of devolves a little bit in the second uh, hour and 20 minutes or so. But really, I, I, I enjoyed this as a part four to um, the the story. And even though there's some time off, I think it there's some really nice touches to it, really well told. So overall, pretty satisfied. Maybe not, didn't love it, but was satisfied. Is that how you felt as well? Yeah, so I, I think what you say is right, that the, the beginning of Resurrections is really superior to the second half because that's where the most interesting things are going on. Notably that it's it's a meta deconstruction of the Matrix as a franchise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Lana Wachowski being like, well, Warner Brothers was going to make it with or without me, so they're going to make it with me. 
but I'm not going to make what they thought I was going to make. Yeah. And it kind of presents this, this really interesting, I think, catch all thing where it's like film fans, critics, we appreciate something so bold, like that kind of idea of making a movie like that. Right. And it, it largely butts heads with what fans want, which is to, or many fans want, which is to be in more Matrix, a la Jurassic World and The Force Awakens. Now, where I think there is some criticism to be laid is where you get to the second part of the film and Matrix Resurrections, not shot on film like the first one, shot digitally. The action just doesn't hold much of a candle to the action of Reloaded and especially the first film. And that's inherently a bit of a problem from a watchability standpoint, from an entertainment standpoint. Watch the dojo scene in the first Matrix film. It's just an absolute classic scene. Yep. Watch the remix dojo scene, which I think narratively was was cool in Resurrection, but watch the actual scene. It's just not as compelling as action. The camera is a lot more zoomed in. We don't get those wide shots of the whole dojo seeing Neil and Morpheus looking at each other. We just, it's not made as in an appealing way. And whether that's also part of the meta commentary, whether that's part of the deconstruction to make a Matrix movie with mediocre action, it doesn't make the movie enjoyable. So, and I wasn't, you know, bored or anything. It's not like it's shit, but it, it, it's maybe an instance of taking that a little too far, I think, for the movie side of things. So I think the other part of that is like a lot of the action outside towards even further in the end of the film when we're like in San Francisco and stuff, I was like really dark, you know, and kind of hard to see. And I saw this in the theater. I didn't watch it on HBO Max, but it was still kind of like, yeah, this is a little like harder to track. And like, it's kind of there. It's kind of still Matrix action, but, you know, it's not, again, it's not like the first film. So I think that, that that's kind of where like, you know, the the good and the bad of this film meet, where it's still still a messy Wachowski film at the end of the day, but Oh, is it thematically bold? And I just can't help but appreciate all of that. Yeah, the the meta uh, context of it all is is really really well done, and I think cleverly told. Um, and I really appreciated all of that. And I think it even makes you kind of look at the the Matrix and and yourself as a as a watcher of the Matrix a little differently. Like the the neologist, uh, I forgot what that character's name was, but I thought that was like a really funny part because right. e- even just before this, I, I watched a couple of the movies with uh, my fiance, and she immediately went and like read all these articles about, or theories about the thing, and I was like, this is something fans did where they like wrote papers and theology yeah. like theological papers about all this there's so much great scholarship on the matrix video essays mm-hmm. all that it really is a really compelling thematic text and i i just really thought it was uh clever to have it be this video game that you know to yeah. neo feels so much more like it like real life and to having to like like seeing the way that him taking the blue pill is like Right, uh, you know, making him like a zombie, so to speak. Like, I, th- I just thought that was all really well done. The the second half, I agree. I think the like swarming feature that they kind of mentioned, how that's so much worse, mm. uh, actually really detracted. Whereas like that fight in Reloaded with Agent Smith and they're swarming, 
the CGI in that looking back, it, you know, would be so much better to be like redone now, but it was still like pretty cool because you basically see like Neo as like a leveled up fighter, um, Kung yeah, Fu artist. The one. And in this, it's really just like, it's just like hard to like kind of tell what's going on in a lot of scenes. Like there's a, a part where Bugs is like, uh, in a car being swarmed and it's like I don't even really know like who's in the car with her it's very like confusing at points um, and then it kind of ends with them on, on that rooftop which I didn't really find to be a super satisfying ending between no. uh, Neo and Trinity and pretty much I, I don't know if this is them you know trying to play down Neo's abilities at this point because it seems like Obviously, Trinity is now the master of the Matrix by the end of the movie, as opposed to Neo. He really was just doing a lot of the like shooting whatever energy out of his hands move. And yeah. that seemed he, he never it. uses a gun, quite notably, in this movie. Yeah. And so it's, uh, you know, it's a little different. And I agree that the action is just not nearly as compelling as in past ones. But, uh, you know, my expectations going into this weren't super high. I didn't really know what to expect from this, and I, I was still pleasantly surprised. I think some of the characters that were introduced, uh, Morpheus as the the program Morpheus and mm-hmm. Bugs, uh, Jessica Henwick especially, yeah. were great. I've also been seeing a lot of um, people praising, or at least like making note that Priyanka Chopper Jonas was in this. Uh, yeah, as adult Sati. Yes, which I thought was kind of a nice touch. I expect to see more of her if they make more of these moving forward. Yeah. What did you think about her? Any thoughts? Uh, she doesn't have a whole lot to really do, just kind of exposition-y, monologue stuff. I was actually more interested in seeing old Niobe uh, yeah. as uh, J.D. Pinkett Smith and just seeing like how uh, they've rebuilt Zion as a new pl- in a new place, Io, and you know, kind of seeing like the technological advancements, right? There are now some gray areas with the matrix there are machines that sympathize with the humans in the real world and programs can be manifested into the real world and you see them doing things and that's how we can still kind of have a morpheus figure throughout the whole film because you can still see yaya abdul mateen in both settings right i think all that's kind of like cool for the lore and stuff like they're not uh, eating gruel anymore that's great good for you guys keep up the fight (laughs) you know Uh, i like seeing the merovingian actually come back in that um, middle fight where they first fight uh, uh, Jonathan Groff Smith, yeah, uh, just just seeing the Merovingian kind of like bully pulpit more like themes and like he's really like saying stuff about the sequelization and franchise nature of Hollywood about how like everything sucks now and it used to be so much better back then. Like he's really like just nailing the the themes of the first half Resurrections home via his monologue it's cool to see that character uh do that because it makes sense for his character in the story to also be having that kind of point of view so i i really appreciate that yeah i agree um i also thought this was a good look for uh jonathan groff who i thought played the new agent smith pretty well and you know we we appreciate him as a performer so i'm glad to see him getting some some bigger meteor roles for sure um any other thoughts on yeah, well, actors. I, yeah, I guess the other question would be uh, our new manifestation of the architect figure is the analyst played by Neil Patrick Harris. Definitely a kind of off type bit of casting. Even Groff, to a certain extent, is a little bit off type for this, but he handled himself well. But yeah, how'd you feel about uh, NPH? I think the analyst character itself, I think, was handled quite well. And because again, he's like, kind of like in the beginning, 
pointing all these logical questions back at Neo as he's trying to keep him controlled, keep him blue pilled, right? But how do you like actually seeing NPH be the performer for that? He's been so up and down for me in his in the movies he's been in. You know, something like Gone Girl comes to mind, right? I really don't like his performance in that movie, although I, I really like the movie in general. Um, I thought he was actually really great as the analyst in this. Um, I, I do feel like the analyst uh, so powerful that, you know, at the end when Trinity and Neo come to just like, you know, kick his jaw off his face and stuff like that. It's a little bit like, oh, uh, I don't know if that totally works for me. But I think up until that point, he's like super menacing and just like he, he's really like aggravating villain. And that, that's mm-hmm. exactly how you, you should yeah. want your villains to be. So I thought he was good. What about you? Yeah, no, I, I agree exactly with that. Um, the other thing, cool thing I noticed is that most people probably don't notice this, but uh, in The Matrix, Trinity's husband is played by Chad Stahelski, mm-hmm. which is obviously awesome for the many connections Chad Stahelski has to Keanu as the director of John Wick, but also as the original stunt double for Neo in The Matrix. Chad Stahelski really coming full circle. Uh, in Hollywood, in the, in the Matrix, so cool to see him just have, have that role, being 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 a Chad. <laughs> I was gonna say naming him Chad in that uh, in that uh, Matrix is really really funny. Uh, good good <laughs> touch. So, uh, if you're a fan of the Matrix trilogy, you obviously have to watch this. And even if you're not, I think you could probably watch and enjoy. But um, some parts are gonna be left, uh, you know, not not make sense to you. Anyways, Dave, why don't we move off of HBO and onto Amazon now? Because uh, right around Christmas, we got Aaron Sorkin's newest movie, Being the Ricardos. Nicole Kidman playing uh, Lucille Ball. You know, mm-hmm. just a absolute uh, ginormous, ginormous character. Uh, I'm not sure yeah. the word I was looking for there. Icon but, uh, of, of comedy. Icon, yeah. Uh, In the 20th century. You know, you, you also have Javier Bardem playing Ricky Ricardo. Um, yeah, you know, Desi, Desi Arnaz in real Desi life. Desi Arnaz, sorry. Um, so, a lot of hype for this. Obviously, Aaron Sorkin, he's been working Trial of Chicago 7 last year. Mm. Did you like being the Ricardos? Important to note, too, Sorkin really has been working. Being the Ricardos was announced and filmed in 2021 and released in 2021. Very impressive. Uh, I, I respect that grind. I did not really like being in the Ricardos that much. I certainly like it less than Trial of Chicago 7 and Molly's Game, Sorkin's other two directorial efforts. And I think what decisions are made in terms of how being in the Ricardos is structured definitely highlight the shortcomings that Sorkin has as a director when compared to his feats as a writer. So I think I thought it was okay, but I didn't really like it too much. It's very Sorkin. And uh, that, that means that it's inherently watchable and inherently the dialogue and the just the interactions are so fast-paced and catchy that you're going to, I think, be able to get through the movie. But I do feel like this is maybe my least favorite Sorkin film and probably just thing in general uh i guess probably up there with the newsroom uh especially the later seasons of it mm. that is that he's put out in probably the last decade or so uh i guess it might be even more than a decade for the newsroom i think about yeah it. 2012 but, i think yeah yeah but 
I think I also just felt like Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem were a bit miscast. And I I don't know if I can necessarily put my finger on it. I think what Nicole Kidman doesn't totally look like Lucia Ball to me. And in her wig, just kind of like mm. looked a little bit like not. It looked like she was Nicole Kidman wearing a wig, I guess, a lot of the time. Javier Bardem also looks nothing like Desi Arnaz. Uh, yeah. Which, it's just kind of like, eh, I get that they wanted a actor who could, you know, go toe to toe with Kidman. Also, that had some Hispanic background. Um, yeah, notably, not but, Cuban though. He's Spanish. Yes, exactly. And just it didn't really work for me. Um, that being said, still a watchable movie, but just a cup. Just it really was not uh, not my favorite. Tell me more about the the structural critiques you have. Yeah. Well, just to follow up on what you just said there. I don't really have like a huge relationship with Lucio Ball and Desi Arnaz. Mm-hmm. Like I Love Lucy was came on. I was too young for my parents. Like my, my parents were too little, yeah. you know, they, they saw it as syndication years later. So uh, it's definitely pretty far removed culturally. So I didn't really have a much of a relationship with it, but yeah, like no one, no one would claim Nicole Kidman has like a slapstick comedy chops. Right. Yeah, no. She's good at mimicking things. She's a great actress, but mm-hmm. not exactly her, her strength. So it's not the perfect analog. But yeah, I think structurally, like there's just a lot of easy stuff right here, right? It's a lot of flashbacks, a lot of back and forth on our timeline here. It just makes it messy. I think the testimonial stuff with like people on the on the staff in the writer's room, played by different actors as like their older selves in the future, telling the story back to us completely superfluous and unnecessary and i think this makes it more confusing shouldn't be confusing right like we have a the basic structure made a lot of sense right the one week of filming from table read to shooting an episode of i love lucy were set in 52 season two of the series that's great and not that you can't have some flashbacks obviously to color in a lot of these uh, relationships here but I just think you just had too much going on. It's just too messy. And you kind of the forward momentum is just often lost. Yeah. Uh, if you think about Trial of the Chicago 7, he did a lot of very similar type things where, you know, the, the trial's happening, then they cut back to planning before the protest, and then they cut back to the trial, and then they cut to this other part uh, that might be, you know, uh, during the trial or but like at night or something like that so there's a lot of like jumping around and sorting things and he likes to do like the time uh time sensitive things you know you think about jobs which is a movie i actually watched on a plane recently really just uh, i think that's so much better than yeah. something like this but notably danny boyle directed it not sorkin right. himself um but you think about sorkin's writing in that it's like oh there's an hour before this presentation for apple or an hour before this presentation for whatever the other company was so he likes those time sensitive things i agree the it starts off with the uh writers as older people and i thought okay this is going to be kind of something that will be like an anchor to, to the the narrative of it no just kind of like pops in every once in a while to make random comments or drop like a funny critique but it's super just like thrown in there and doesn't really add much and then the jumping around you know showing their relationship and how they came together and what they were doing i found that stuff pretty interesting but i feel like you could have done that as like the first 20 minutes of the movie and then put us into this like 
one week before this episode comes out type of thing. It would have made a lot more sense and just let me, I think, I think that's a really good point. Um, any other narrative critiques that you had of it? I think that's really it. Um, on the other hand, I liked how it started with the table read. It's a great introduction to Mm. all the writers and really the supporting cast of the film. I thought that was an effective way, give everyone some quick lines, show everyone's face in a way Sorkin can do it, you know, in terms of the back and forth dialogue that he's so strong at. And later on, we even get the classic walk and talk as Desi's leading him uh, backstage, you know, it's like, and at the end, we have the rousing, uh, heartfelt, emotional Sorkin speech. There's a lot of the trademarks here, but he, he needs someone to reel him in to uplift the overall package. Yeah. Uh, I completely agree that, you know, you get some of this, some of this good stuff, but, you know, some of the, the scenes that really, I, that really worked for me were scenes that weren't even between Bardem and Kidman. It was, uh, yeah, Nicole Kidman with, um, what's her name? I just lost it. Nina Arianda. Yeah. As Vivian Vance. They're, right. they're back and forth, you know, where she finally confronts, uh, Lucille Vivian confronts Lucille Ball about, you know, sending uh, food to her because you know she's on a diet and she wants to look good. And you know, Lucille says, "Well, most women in America look like you," and that's what they relate to on the show. And like that dynamic, I thought was really great. And just the different levels of their friendship and the the work relationship they had, I thought came across really well there. And I found those kind of scenes a lot more compelling. Or even Kidman with J.K. Simmons. Um, talking about like how to keep desi happy and how to like mm. save the marriage i i thought was a lot more compelling than some of the stuff between uh you know lucille and desi necessarily on on screen did you feel that way as well yeah totally i thought uh arianda jk as well as ali shakwa i think the notable mm. uh supporting players i really liked shakwa's talk with kidman about like the responsibilities and just difference, different differences that female writers on a comedy have and like what their responsibilities are uh, in terms of how they frame the story and stuff. I thought that kind of scene, that kind of theme, really nice to see espoused in that kind of intelligent way. But the movie maybe could have built up to some of this stuff if we're not like doing all this back and forth that is just kind of distracting. So yeah, there's a lot of like there's a lot of those moments I like, and I think the the greater cast is nice. Like Tony Hale, I uh, kind of liked him as like the head head writer there. You know his his uh, flippant or uh, or his his uh, attack at the kind of flippant request to give up his EP credit and stuff. I really like that. So there's some good moments, you know, and it, it should be a compelling story here. You know, you have like really two larger in life lead characters, you know, but yeah. It's just doesn't quite come together as well as it should because you can see all the parts starting to click, but they just don't click all the way. Yeah, another classic Sorkin trope in his movies is like taking something small that's symbolic and making it a focal point for the main character to just obsess over and then having it come to fruition at the end. And in this one, it was uh, Lucille wanting something specific to be done in this scene. It was, uh, oh, man, what was the choice? Because they, they didn't, oh, they the didn't want Lucia. 
yeah the flowers i think they didn't want lucille to oh no how how she wouldn't know it was desi you know so hmm. like oh you really think she's that stupid where she wouldn't know it's her own husband and she keeps guessing these names and um you know they they film it one way and film the other and then at the end as she lets go of their relationship uh between her and desi she also kind of lets go of the the choice on the show of you know her recognizing ricky when he comes in the set as well yeah yeah i, I just found that sort of thing just to be like uh, very eye rolly in this movie and i think it's just that you know sorkin covers some really interesting topics like this was something i never would have looked into myself it made me kind of look into the history of lucille ball more but just overall i just felt like this did not work the way i hoped it would so uh better days ahead i'm sure for aaron sorkin he doesn't really have anything listed right now as a next movie i'm, I'm seeing here if he has a show on the horizon because it doesn't, doesn't sound like it he's yeah been pretty busy so not surprising for sure um we'll be talking about him more any, any uh awards ramifications from this that, you think it sounds like kidman's definitely in play here mm-hmm. wouldn't be my first choice but yeah that, that, that seems to be where the the, the campaign is heading here in I don't think it's Sorkin's strongest screenplay either, but he's always um, a threat in that category too, given his reputation. So keep an eye on that. Definitely the sort of thing that the Oscars usually like stories about these sort of Hollywood figures. Dave, why don't we move on to something that feels like it's going to be getting a lot more awards love, which is the lost daughter just premiered uh, on New Year's Eve, I believe. Um, on Netflix, Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, Olivia Coleman, the 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 star, the pretty much the movie, you know, in a lot of ways. I guess uh, there's a couple other actresses that get some some time here, but really, it's this is Olivia Coleman show, a uh, novel by Elena Ferrante as the source material for this, for, for uh, premiered at Venice. Back in September, getting a lot of love, uh, won numerous awards, been nominated for numerous awards at these film festivals. Didn't didn't totally catch me the way I thought it would. I was a little bit surprised because I I think that Mm. I think Coleman's great in this. I think there's some other really good performances, but didn't totally catch me the way I hoped it would. Did you feel the same way about The Lost Daughter? I did. You know, I never watched the trailer. I didn't really know much about what was going on with this i guess my only connection to it is as you said it's a lena ferrante novel hbo is adapting the neapolitan novels currently with my brilliant friend so i've been exposed to the ferrante storytelling a little bit but still didn't really know what to expect here and you know it's really more of like a psychological thriller than anything else and i guess that's just not really what i was expecting you know and like there's a tension in the film and there's conflicts, but it's not really what you think it's going to be. And it didn't totally grab me either. On the other hand, as you said, Coleman's still really great on track for her third acting Oscar nomination in the past four years. And oh, by the way, she just won an acting Emmy for The Crown, like really untouchable as far as actresses go right now. She's just on an incredible heater. And I think she's really great in this, but like it's one of those more moody, reserved performances and characters that is you kind of got to chew on it for a while to, I guess, 
come up with your opinion. Yeah, and you know, I, I think it should be noted that this is a story that's truly about motherhood. And um, it might make sense that, you know, two males talking about this may not be able to connect with the story yeah. the way that a female may, because uh, we are not able yeah. right now to be mothers. Um, or so, a cur- even a current mother specifically. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's definitely something that I think probably speaks on different levels to people who are mothers um, or have children, maybe even that that might be a, mm-hmm. a way you can access this a bit because it really, I think tells the story about Lita who's played by Olivia Coleman and just how motherhood never really fit for her and was very wearing on her. And, and, you know, uh, she summarizes it well in the last scene between her and Nina played by Dakota Johnson. She's just an unnatural mother and you know, not really ever what you would think of and that that's kind of portrayed as she experiences this like getaway this holiday as a professor to do some writing um in, in greece she encounters Scott johnson uh, who's a young mother herself and seems to be struggling with her daughter's frequent needs and just uh not a lot of support from her husband and she sees a lot of herself in in nina and as she kind of grapples with her own past abandoning her children for three years um, while she went and pursued a relationship with Peter Sarsgaard's character, Professor Hardy and kind of lived her own life. It's a, it is more of a psychological thrill. It is more of a, like trying to, I think, grapple with guilt and pain, but also maybe like the lack of guilt and pain (laughs) that comes from things. It's a very like murky story that I think you, like you said, you have to kind of sit and chew on a lot and, just kind of left me not super compelled, but also I think impressed with Coleman kind of feels like she has a lot bubbling underneath the surface throughout this movie and is telling it is saying a lot without saying a lot at times. And as always just impressed with her, but otherwise not really didn't really grab me. Right. Yeah. It, it's notable. That's not like the most showy flashy Coleman role of late. This is not the favorite from your host land. most right. Right. But it just shows another side of her acting ability that she can still deliver powerful performance in a different different light. Uh, I thought Dakota Johnson was almost unrecognizable for the beginning of the movie. Like I was watching it, and I was like looking at her when you finally like get like more of that FaceTime, and then I like something clicked in my mind. I was like, "Oh right, Dakota Johnson's in this movie. That must be her." And then like, "Oh, now I see it. Yeah, that's her." So like, yeah, oh, wow. Uh, that's cool. Uh, but shout out, shout out to my dude, Paul Mescal. <laughs> normal people alum just 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 chilling in here Happy just macking all up and down yeah greeks man. now not a european and not, not i don't live in europe so i i don't know how realistic is it for irish people to work in greece in the summer <laughs> not yeah. exactly the the, the 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 closest place to have a summer job i don't know yeah just gonna be go be a uh a lifeguard in greece at this resort, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how like those resort jobs. You, you work. couldn't have done like France or something like the, the other side of the Mediterranean. I don't know. Um, um, you know who else funny. I thought get, get some really good shine in this is Jesse Buckley, who plays um, young Lita in this. And the scene where, I mean, th- there's a lot of scenes of her looking exasperated and frustrated as her children are constantly looking for attention from her, her to take care of her, and she's trying to also work her way through grad school and navigate all this stuff but the scene where they 
have the they're at a vacation house and they have these two travelers come in and right. they spend a day with them. I think it's just a really captivating scene in this because not only do you kind of see Bucky Buckley as uh, young Lita at first judging these people for their lifestyle and you know one person abandoned I think the husband abandoned his children and she was you know kind of like how could you do that but then slowly coming to that realization like "Mm, maybe this actually is what I want to do and like just the way that she plays that scene finally like asks the female traveler like are his his daughters okay and she's like he has boys like you know like you just kind of can like see like the wheels spinning there and where it's going and I just thought it was really good looking obviously we saw her last year and was was it two years ago now man has no it had to have been last year right in the um that other psychological thriller uh Jesse Buckley um Chernobyl no, no, no. She was in Wild that Rose? movie. Um, gosh, she was sorry, in something. She's, she's, she's been like, uh, oh, I'm thinking of ending. I'm things. thinking of Charlie ending Kaufman. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Charlie Kaufman. It's, uh, uh, that was a movie that I'm probably never going to go back to, but is very memorable to me. <laughs> um, and I, I think this is a, another great look for her. So um, yeah. She's on the yeah, rise, just, for sure. Yeah, also um, Dagmara uh, Demonicic as the uh like uh, ant figure i believe to Dakota johnson's character uh like the matriarch i guess of that uh, large family that kind of interrupts lita's vacation on the beach really memorable i think really uh exact characterization of that kind of person in terms of uh when they're polite and when they're rude stuff like that you know um these people are supposed to be from uh, New York from the city, so it uh, felt familiar to me. Uh, this this, <laughs> yes. this kind of this kind of stuff <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was amusing. Yeah, I guess for me, just overall, like, the reason I, I find the lost daughter just a little distant is the stuff with the doll. Like, I just why she takes the doll is never really answered. And she doesn't really know why Lita doesn't really know why she took the doll either. And for me, just the why that's so abstract and vague yeah. is kind of what lost me. Yeah, I didn't really understand that fully either. It seemed like she just kind of wanted the child to be difficult, to be difficult for the mom, to like perpetuate the pain that she went through. Uh-huh. Seems like she's a very like petty person in that sense, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. definitely feels it, it, I thought for a while it was gonna be that she wanted to like make fix the doll up make it perfect and then like be the hero even though she was really the person that caused the pain type of thing but really what i don't know it didn't turn out that way at all so mm-hmm. i don't know anyways we, we i mentioned that this is beginning a lot of buzz at awards uh or at um film festivals getting a lot of awards there maggie gyllenhaal potentially in the best director conversation i think that's a stacked field i think yeah. adapted screenplay probably feels likely any, yeah. What else? Coleman? Yeah, that's a good call. Coleman, yeah, definitely. Uh, some of the other ward bodies, first feature, uh, Maggie mm. G, per- perhaps the winner for a lot of those yeah. kind of awards. I guess kind of makes sense that she would become a director after playing someone who becomes a director for a few years on the deuce. Cool to see. Also, uh, Peter Sarsgaard's her husband. So nice to see that, oh. uh, that uh, creative synergy uh, happening uh, in work. But yeah, stars, man. yeah, I would say screenplay and Coleman acting are probably the most likely for Oscars. 
Yeah, I agree. Why don't we move forward to something else that <laughs> uh, this grabbed me a lot more, but has not grabbed a lot of people um, <laughs> in the way that, that they expected. Don't look up Adam McKay's newest movie dropping on Christmas Day. Uh, this has like a 56 or something like that on Rotten Tomatoes. Really has, I think, divided critics. Um, it's a, obviously a stacked cast uh, led by Leo and J-Law, but you know, Kate Blanchett, Jonah Hill, Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet, a lot of big names in this, as there typically are with Adam McKay films. Dave, my first question, probably the most important one, why did the colonel charge them for the free snacks? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in, in seriousness, um, what what do you make of the mixed reception to this? Why, why is this hitting with some and not with others? Yeah, no, it's uh, very interesting to think about. And there's a lot of discourse that I find really frustrating around Don't Look Up overall. And a lot of that has to do with just the relationship between art and criticism we can get to that but i would say don't look up it has a lot of characters and not a lot of subtlety and no that's not for everyone you know it's really funny to see a lot of people say too you know so it didn't work for me but i liked it more than vice i thought vice was way more intelligent than don't look up to be yes. honest like yeah. don't look up is kind of just like holding up a billboard with a message on it and once you read the first read that message they never erase it and put a new message on there's like there's, there's nothing actually being said in a profound manner in don't look up and on the other hand it's not like a dynamite comedy the way adam mckay used to make his bones when he still was cool with will ferrell so it's it's it doesn't really to me serve either master so it's just kind of like a mix, mixed thing in the middle I find it broadly entertaining just because I like seeing all of these people together doing doing stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I think it really misses the mark for what it's trying to achieve. I think I might have liked it a bit more, um, you know, because uh, I think what McKay was really going for with this. And if you listen to a few of his interviews, he's pretty straightforward, which is like, obviously, the comment in this is a. Uh, metaphor for the climate crisis and mm -hmm. if you're even aware of the climate crisis why would you not just be making this the number one issue in your life moving forward um which i think he captures a lot of the absurdity around the politics and around the mental gymnastics that people do around the climate crisis in this uh i think he captures that well uh, if not but not subtle like you said a lot of it is very overt and just very like ridiculous um but i i think that the film is pretty like it, it like it, like most mckay films are it's very entertaining to me and it just kind of held my attention really well and like you said you, you're seeing a lot of actors doing fun things i think anytime you get leo leading something you're pretty much going to be like sucked into it even like the revenant which was like to me a lot tougher to watch than something like this because it just wasn't super entertaining i like seeing leo just be ridiculous and go on this crazy journey as like a professor who becomes famous and starts an affair with kate blanchett um but yeah i i think the the critiques of it not being totally a comedy not being very subtle 
not really being a doomsday movie like it it doesn't really check a lot of boxes but i think it still works somehow if that makes sense uh, i'll say i like the revenant a lot more than this i like the revenant revenant's underrated now <laughs> yeah it is no. it definitely is underrated but it's just not like a fun film to rewatch to me yeah sure uh i guess my thing is it seems like adam mckay who's who's been a little punchy about the reception too adam mckay like you want a fucking lollipop because you said the climate change is a big deal congratulations <laughs> dude like that doesn't make you smart like like sure. if anything like it's so simple it's so basic like I, I i'm someone who reads bloomberg green all the fucking time i'm very serious about the climate crisis and environmentalism in general but like this doesn't impress me so as a film i if it's not going to be super impressive from a message standpoint i like it to be funny it's not really that funny or i like it to just be broadly watchable with compelling character uh, actors which i think it is so What's really annoyed me, though, about this is there's all these people that are like, it's like, but, but that, that's the point. The point is that people don't pay attention. How, you know, all these people criticizing it. It's like, you just don't take it seriously. It's like, no, actually, it's just called fucking film criticism, you idiots. And you can criticize something that's about an important issue. Oh, and sure. th- th- yeah. th- there's been some galaxy brain people about this movie that's really annoyed <laughs> me. But I think it's broadly entertaining. I thought Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry on like the infotainment type of view setting. Mm-hmm. I thought they were really great. Um, I actually really liked watching uh, Leo lose his mind a yeah. little bit. I, I actually liked that brief interlude where he's like clapping back at people on the message boards in like a really <laughs> yeah. earnest, serious way. That was mm-hmm. smart uh, in general. Great to see Jennifer Lawrence back after a, uh, a break she uh chose on her own accord that was great you know i th- i thought jonah hill awesome as like a don jr type stand in there i thought meryl was you know kind of okay as like a trump figure yeah. not, nothing nothing fancy uh yeah rylance as a jobs musk tech billionaire figure okay chalamet doesn't really have a whole lot going on there was a whole lot to do in this so like, the cast though is, is obviously really impressive um but I just have a hard time, like, like giving the movie points for saying climate change is a problem and people don't pay attention. It's like, and is that all you have to say about it? Because if that's all you have to say, then you didn't really say anything. That's how I yeah, feel. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, I, I think I don't have the data. This is like a funny thing to say about this, I think. But I don't have the data to say if, if, I could give them points for it or not because I don't know how many people that typically would choose not to engage with climate content or climate crisis uh, information mm-hmm. are actually engaging with this and being like awoken or something like that. I, I do think there's something to a movie that obviously is not explicitly saying this is the climate crisis, but pretty overtly the metaphor is about climate crisis. Maybe will suck some people in who wouldn't typically uh engage with this it might take something away but yeah i agree i don't think on the surface just making a movie about the climate crisis yeah. is something to get credit for i also think it's treatment of the media and if it's like comment on the media and stuff i think it's like overly simplified and not really spot on like if the world was ending in five fucking months 
you bet your ass that is the lead story of every news program for five fucking months. What are you talking about? Have you not seen how we handled the pandemic on the news yeah. for two years? Like that That's just an inaccurate read, in my opinion. And this movie was uh, formed uh, pre-pandemic and kind of tweaked once the pandemic happened. But I also thought that was kind of like, that's just like not what would happen. And you're actually trying yeah. to present this as what happens today and why that's bad. But I didn't think that was right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't think that's right. I, I think the more accurate portrayal would be how like the White House was telling certain news stations to put certain stories up and then other stations putting other ones. And I, I can't recall if they did that. I think there might have been something where it was like, this is the headline on all the other ones. And then one station had like some stupid headline. But uh, I, I definitely think that some of it is oversimplified. I also just... Uh, you know, I think that's a bit surprising for McKay, who, when you look at something like The Big Short or even like Vice, I think he told some pretty complicated, nuanced things pretty well. I think it's hard with something like The Climate Crisis. And this is, like you said, a very broad, sweeping movie that is touching on a lot of aspects of the crisis and how we got here um, to maybe be super nuanced with every aspect of it. Um, because if you even think about like, <laughs> the fact that they're dealing with a Meryl Streep like uh, president, you know, Donald Trump like president in this, they they don't even get into like how a person like that got into power and how those mm. sort of supporters may be driving a bit of the lack of people wanting to engage with this kind of climate or yeah. like, comet crisis stuff. I don't know. It's it's totally. it's hard, but I, I thought the movie overall was was pretty watchable. So. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I think it's watchable for sure. Um, you know, it, it's I'm actually I'm actually interested in make, make, very interested in McKay's next film, which is going to be at Apple about Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos scandal, starring yeah. Jennifer Lawrence. I think that type of story lends itself to McKay's sensibility. McKay clearly is someone who's more focused on doing slightly more serious material, even if he tries to take the you know, take the air out of the room sometimes still a little bit with some comedy. He's clearly interested in more serious stuff. But I think the Therano story uh, is a good fit for him. And in general, I'm just really happy to see J-Law getting back in the swing because she still is really great. She just wasn't picking great roles before she slowed down for a little bit there. Um, and yeah, also, obviously, of course, we, we have Winning Time coming out soon on yes. HBO, the Showtime Lakers show in March. So we'll be getting plenty of Adam McKay soon. And uh, yeah, oh, yeah, and also just shout out um Timothy Chalamet again. Not really much of a role with this, but he did work with Adam McKay, Wes Anderson, and Denny Villeneuve in 2021. Really big year for him. Yeah, uh, pretty good for our guy Timothy. Uh, I I don't see this getting much awards buzz. Do you? I don't know about that, man. It's being pegged so? as something getting nominated for Best Picture. I think that I think that'd be tough. Yeah, so I, I think the, the the way it seems to be going is it would probably be nominated for Best Picture, maybe some other stuff. Probably is not going to win much of anything. Um, Leo, J-Law, they're not really in the race for acting. So, you know, it's not my pick. It's not in my top 10. Spoilers for next week. But uh, it seems to be going that way because the Academy ha has liked McKay quite a bit the past two films he made. Remember, Vice also had a bit of a polarizing reception, but still got like eight nominations. So... Keep sure. an eye out for this, honestly. Man, that uh, I think uh, as we talk about our movies of the year, I mean, I haven't 
made my list quite yet. I definitely am starting to narrow it down. I, I don't see this cracking my top 10, uh, maybe top 20, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think if it got a best picture nom, that'd be kind of a tough pill to swallow. Anyways, let's talk about something that I expect to get a lot more awards buzz, which is the tragedy of Macbeth, which I did not see yet, but our guy, Dave putting in the hours for y'all going to the movie theater, checking out Denzel Washington behind the camera and in front of it for the tragedy of Macbeth. Dave, what'd you think of this movie? Yeah. So the tragedy of Macbeth is coming out on Apple TV plus on January 14th and got a Christmas day release in like 700 theaters. So just wait out for Apple. It'll be there. Not actually directed by Denzel. This is directed by Joel Cohen of the Cohen brothers without his brother, Ethan first feature film without the brother kind of ironically, Ethan is shifting back to theater. And meanwhile, his brother Joel is adapting a, famous uh, theatrical play without him either way it's just Joel Cohen and I was really impressed with this you know I think in general the most probably interesting conversation here is just like how we think about Shakespeare in 2021 2022 Um, obviously Macbeth in particular I believe has been adapted 25 times I believe is the count really famously Polanski Orson Welles Kurosawa you had the really gritty Michael Fassbender one about five years ago. You had the Florence Pugh breakout role in Lady Macbeth. People know Macbeth, right? It's probably the second or third most famous Shakespearean tragedy with Romeo, Juliet, and Hamlet. I think that's the big three, I'd have to say. Yeah. And Macbeth definitely, I think definitely the darkest of the three. You know, like Romeo and Juliet, dark ending, but, you know, there's, there's some fun stuff going on in the beginning but Macbeth that's pretty darn dark right and what, what I really appreciated about Joel Cohen's version of this is it's really stripped down really minimal and really just the essentials of the story of the theme the notice when you watch the movie is that it's shot on a back lot this is all shot on set and yet it all just really works because you have this really precise staging and lighting and obviously stark black and white and gray uh, color. And the cinematography just really, I think really sucks you in, even though you can tell these are really like specific sparse sets and kind of keeps that theatrical feel of something that people will see, you usually see on stage, but still giving it a cinematic quality. And I think that's just, you know, a cool way to do it because if you're going to, if you're going to adapt something as rapidly adapted as most of Shakespeare has been, at least do something different to some kind of spin. Right. And there's definitely a spin with the tragedy of Macbeth. I think that's really cool. I think part of that, obviously Denzel Washington playing a grayer, older Macbeth character, given that Denzel's like 66 or however old he is. And I think Denzel, once we get towards the later stage of the story, Macbeth becomes more manic and crazed. Denzel's like, you know, really, really belting it now. You know, you know what Denzel sounds like when he emotes and he's doing that, of course, in Iambic Pentameter. So uh, I really thought he was good as Macbeth. Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth, bit of a different speed, honestly, like a bit more understated 
bit more quiet, but she still kind of captures the character and like the the motivations that the two of them have as they you know take the throne and all that. So I like I like the two of them together. I think the biggest scene stealer though is Corey Hawkins as Macduff. Second time this year, obviously stole the stole stole the scenes in in the Heights as well. But yeah. Corey, Corey Hawkins was re- really phenomenal in this. And also uh, Alex Hassel as Ross was really good. Alex Hassel was recently seen as Vicious in Netflix Cowboy Bebop. Uh, not a character I really cared for in terms of that interpretation. But Alex Hassel does have a strong reputation as a theater performer. And it showed in the tragedy of Macbeth. You know, he has those really like expressive, big eyes, but just he can really like chew on the script in a, I think a really awesome way. He was a phenomenal. And lastly, Catherine Hunter, maybe the performance of the film. She plays all three witches and is just kind of spellbinding the way she like contorts her body and stuff to be the witches. And they do kind of like some vocal dubbing to give her voice, like the sound of three voices together and stuff. They'll do uh, visual effects to, uh, like she'll be standing there and then you look in the reflection and there's three uh, which, which figures there and stuff. Walter is, or sorry, Catherine Hunter is really impressive as the witches, you know, and like when you get the, you know, uh, cauldron scene, you know, uh, toil and trouble stuff like this, you know, it's, it's what you know, but I think it's just done at a high level because again, like all that staging, all that lighting, all that's like just really engaging stuff. So I guess it's like hard to like be like super like celebratory about something so familiar like Shakespeare. But on the other hand, like Shakespeare is still super fucking relevant. Like it's, it's a big part of station 11 on HBO right now and the best shows currently airing. So, uh, and another hand, like Macbeth, definitely a conflicted protagonist very familiar to protagonists we see in other Coen Brothers films. So everything really, I think, kind of all makes sense and coalesces here. So I definitely recommend The Tragedy of Macbeth when it comes out on Apple TV Plus at the end of next week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching it as well. Dave, what's your theory on Shakespeare? Do you think he was one guy who wrote all these? It's a great, the, the authorship of Shakespeare is a phenomenal thing to dive into. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. I think he wrote most of it, maybe had some help on the side, but I, I largely credit credit the man. Yes. What about you? You know, uh, I think I might subscribe more to like it being multiple people. I'm also I also came across a similar theory about um, Socrates and if all all of his theories, if he was uh, actually a philosophy. person. There, yeah, there's been no apparently no um, census that's ever been found to con- uh, identify Socrates as a person. So there's a theory that Socrates was like uh, a joke among philosophers at the time that like if, you know, they had a theory or they didn't know who to attribute to, to, they said, oh, Socrates said this, but they never actually like had a person lived. It's pretty interesting stuff. It's a fun debate to dive into, but yeah, more than likely Shakespeare probably wrote most of these. I think you're probably right. right. Also, Uh, shout out um, uh, Harry Melling as Malcolm. Harry Melling, uh, you know, Dudley Dursley. Uh, mm-hmm. back in the day but has really i think made a name for himself as a character actor a supporting actor like in buster scruggs and queen's gambit recently another memorable uh performance from him he's honestly really good and i just want to ask you like 
how do you uh how do you like like Shakespeare like the diameter of it all like for me like watching the film watching people like Denzel and Hawkins and you know Alex Hassel and McDonald watching them just like spew iambic pentameter at like normal talking volume you know it's like it's a lot to like process I think watching Shakespeare is a little harder to follow than it is to read right and like I really liked learning it in school because you could sit with it and analyze it and really talk about it but like watching something like perform for you in real time I feel like can be a bit challenging at times like there, there, there's times when I'm watching and I'm like fuck I really don't know what you just said and like I don't have the ability to reread that sentence you know but like yeah. thematically once you actually understand what's going on it's Shakespeare it's always so brilliant yeah you know I like li- listening to or watching it I agree the experience for me can be a little bit like uh eh, I don't I don't know if I totally jive with this but I think once you do know the material and once you like either know the storyline or have read it yourself I think it definitely is a lot more engaging um I don't really like get into a lot of Shakespeare like just in like my free time I think my my dad actually growing up watched a lot mm-hmm. of Shakespeare I think there's a That's Kenneth cool. Branagh Macbeth uh from back in the day that he, yeah, really liked. he did Othello as well yeah, yeah so maybe it was Othello but yeah. he, he really like watched that a lot and I never really got into yeah, the bargain but uh I'm excited to see this one I think the Denzel Francis McDormand of it all is what pulled me in more so but Shakespeare I mean if you don't appreciate him I mean you at least have to acknowledge his influence it's undeniable so uh get get with that iambic pentameter bro <laughs> do it uh dave that we're gonna wrap up there what do we got for next week? so we'll be do- doing our best movies of 2021 at last decided to do that but there's also a lot of other fucking stuff already despite being the second week of january this is not typical alas hbo kicking it off with the righteous gemstone season two and euphoria season two the weekend releasing a new album dawn fm this friday um blinding lights has only left the chart in like less than six months and he's already got another album coming uh huge huge power move from him and also the tender bar ben affleck is on amazon and uh ali alexander's uh, years and years is releasing an album too which i'm excited about so i think that's a lot of uh notable stuff coming out and we'll still be talking about all, all our movies too. So 2022, getting it rolling. Yeah, look at us actually uh, having some stuff to talk about in January. Feels look good. Us. Feels good. Anyways, we'll catch you next week. Hey.